Confluence Radio is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. But if you wanna, if you wanna get a win-win, if you wanna do that, then you gotta step up. You gotta be there. You gotta be at the table to make that happen. Uh, if not, then then uh, uh, nothing's gonna happen. Hello, and welcome to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River System. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Antone Minthorn likes to remind you that the best outcome is always the win-win. It's shorthand for a whole host of accomplishments throughout his professional life, and also successes he's seen over the years for his tribe. Minthorn is Confluence's founding board chair and the former chair of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Eastern Oregon. When Antone talks about the win-win, He means progress for tribes does not have to come at the expense of the wider community. In fact, it's the exact opposite, that supporting tribal opportunities also benefits non-tribal communities as well. In today's episode, we'll hear Anton Minthorn talk about tribal economies, the history of treaties along the Columbia River system, and how to get to that win-win. You'll also hear Umatilla tribal member Chuck Sams, who conducted this interview for Confluence back in 2019. Chuck went on to become the first Native American to lead the National Park Service. We begin with an introduction from Antone himself. My name is Antone Minthorn, and I'm from the Umatilla Indian Reservation in northeastern Oregon. And I uh, am a college graduate, uh, Eastern Oregon uh, College, uh, and also uh, Gonzaga University, and did some master's work at the University of Oregon uh, School of Planning. I was raised uh, by my uh, grandmother and my grandfather in Thorn Hollow on the Umatilla Indian Reservation, which is uh, a valley uh, of the Umatilla River. And uh, I grew up with them since my mother was ill at the time and could not take care of me, uh, so my grandparents did. And my grandfather is a Cayuse uh, Indian and my grandmother is a Nespers uh, Indian. And from the time I was uh, small, a, a, a child, a baby, uh, I learned how to talk uh, and uh, understand Nespers language. I still speak Nespers. 2003 was the marking of the 200th anniversary of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And uh, this tribe wrestled with the idea of being part of that um, recognition and celebration. Ultimately, you decided that we should participate in it. Why? Because of the things we're talking about, because of the economy, uh, because of the the preservation uh, of natural resources or the restoration of natural resources, that we actually did that. 
Uh, we brought salmon back, we brought water back, we built the economy, we, 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 we uh, created jobs for people, uh, that they could go to work, that they could have uh, an income, uh, dividend payments came out of that, and uh, 401ks, there's, there's just a whole lot of benefits that can occur uh, because uh, that we have built built this economy. And we have a government that, uh, because of its culture and concern for uh, natural resources, for first foods, uh, that we're we're doing that, and we're learning how to budget that, and how to how to take care of uh, what we have, and I think that's the point of the confluence project, that they had they had hit that point where where clear cutting and dams and all that damage to the natural resources uh, had occurred, uh, but that that we are beginning to uh, uh, pay attention and beginning to restore natural resources uh, back. Uh, to uh, its original state, like like uh, water and salmon, uh, that were very instrumental in in making that occur. But like I say, it's a tough fight all the way. But you got to be there. So the Confluence Project was born out of this idea of this uh, celebration of the Lewis and Clark Expedition and the recognition of its two hundred years. And so what you're saying is you you believe that the Confluence Project then is an educational vehicle to continue to have that discussion of what happens when we actually work together? Very much, yeah. Because when we, when we first did it, uh, uh, came up with that idea uh, of Confluence uh, and why do we need to participate? Uh, well, the American needs to know where the tribes, where the... Where, where the uh, uh, Native Americans are uh, today, uh, they need to understand that, and we can, um, do, and, and it's very narrowly Umatilla that we initially talked about, but now when the confluence of the of the six, seven projects, then we're going down river, and uh, we're starting to uh, communicate with the, with the whole basin, uh, the river, the mid-Columbia mid basin, about uh, tribes and about uh, management of natural resources. And there's some tremendous, wonderful things happening, like that uh, She Who Watches uh, demonstration. Uh, big things are happening there. Uh, but again, it, just, it started from this uh, idea, but it's people that make it work. It's people that, that can uh, make the goals of uh, building strong economies and um, preserving natural resources over the next seven generations because these little guys are learning about it. 217 years ago when Lewis and Clark and the men that joined their expedition and Sakakawea joined the expedition, it really seemed that it was just them trying to find a way west. There really wasn't this bridging of, of cultures. In the last 17 years, nearly 17 years now, it seems that the Confluence Project is actually about the blending of those cultures and that they're actually stronger together where they do come into confluence. Is that true? Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's creating an understanding uh, uh, of, of uh, culture. Uh, I think it's an understanding of, uh, of Sacagawea and who she is and how she got involved and uh, in what the thinking was going on that time with Thomas Jefferson, uh, the President of the United States, and his relationship with, uh, with tribes. Uh, and we're still, we're still working on that. We're still building that. And I think uh, ultimately, 
uh, I would say that uh, because the, this land, uh, the United States is important to Native Americans, but to all of us now for the immigrants that came in because they have the same, the same resources and the same access to it. Um, but I think that the important thing is freedom and sovereignty, uh, that we can practice that and respect each other's it. Tribal sovereignty means the right to govern one's own community, in this case, the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. Treaties protect that. Here's Chuck and Antone. Now, the provisions of the treaty ensure that we can go to all our usual custom stations. That's not just about hunting, gathering food. That's also for economic value. Is that correct? That is correct. And I, I think um, when they were doing the negotiating uh, uh, with the federal government and it was for a place for their people, their children, to have a place to stay, to live. But moreover, it was the economy. Uh, that was where the water, the fish, the roots and berries and all those uh, uh, subsistence foods were. That was that was the concern. It was just, just to be able to make a living, to stay alive. Uh, and like I say, they, they, they uh, succeeded in doing that. But again, uh, they, they, they had the treaty, the 512,000-acre uh, treaty as the homeland and economy. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, problems came up later. Just a little history here. The allotment period Chuck speaks about was spurred by the Slater Act in 1885. It was followed by the more widely known Dawes Act, or General Allotment Act, in 1887, It was the earlier Slater Act that authorized allotment of Umatilla lands in eastern Oregon, and this greatly diminished reservation land. While land was allotted to tribal members in 1888, those pieces of property began to be sold off to the public later. The allotment and the assimilation period between 1883 until the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act was a low point for our people. We were at our lowest in population at the turn of the century in 1900. But what was happening between 1900 until the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934? I'm not certain about that. Uh, from 1900, uh, that there were those, there were the Indian wars uh, that were occurring. Uh, and I think that right after the Treaty of 1855, there was the Walla Walla uh, War, the Yakima War, the Coeur d'Alene War, uh, and then the Nespers War, 1877, then the, and then the, uh, uh, the Bannock War, 1878, and uh, uh, the Shoshone uh, uh, Sheep Eater War in, in 1879. Um, those were uh, wars that were uh, uh, fought, and 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 the, and the Cayuse our tribes uh, participated in all of those fights and the wars there. Um, up to up to uh, that time, uh, uh, and I think Penland was forming at that time around 1885, 1888, and the railroad tracks were being built through here. I think completed 1885, 1888, uh, and then. Uh, uh, there were the railroad track was coming through here, and uh, the Nespers War uh, had just been finished, and Joseph uh, 
was taken as prisoner Joseph Band to Oklahoma Territory and then I think returned in 1888, uh, came back uh, uh, to Nespelum and then passed through this, this area here. Um, and I think around uh, about that time allotment was coming up, the 18, 1885, the later than 1887 uh, Dawes Allotment Act uh, uh, was, was uh, underway. And uh, a lot of the, some of those people that were with Joseph, the Joseph band, came here to Umatilla. Red Elk is one of those that came. My grandfather was a cattleman, raised cattle uh, up at Thorn Hollow uh, area. And his son, uh, my dad, William Minthorn, was also a farmer, uh, cattleman, and, and a carpenter. And they built um, uh, a lot of uh, buildings, uh, infrastructure uh, for the farm. And then World War II came, and my my uh, my dad uh, went went into the army. And in the meantime, my grandfather died. Uh, Gilbert Minthorn uh, died at that time. So nobody uh, uh, really. Uh, was there to manage the farm, and it went under eventually. And when my dad got home, he had uh, a tropical disease, uh, jungle rot, and was near uh, near taking his life. But he recovered from that, and while he was recovering, then he went to school, uh, engineering school in Spokane, Gonzaga University, and graduated from that in 1953. But in the meantime, uh, that he was recovering like that, he was also a tribal council for the tribe. They had general council those days. There was no uh, board of trustees or, or general council organization. That happened later, it's like in 1940 and 1950. The, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was managing uh, the tribal affairs, and uh, that was the concern of a lot of the uh, families that owned uh, land and were uh, using it for farming and agriculture, leasing it out to white farmers and not getting, they felt they weren't getting enough back, uh, income back from them. So they were trying to uh, work work that out uh, to get a better deal through the, through the Umatilla agency superintendent and they weren't getting very far. On late 46, we hired a man named Charles Luce to become the tribe's attorney and he was charged with developing a constitution. How did our modern form of government come about through his work? The, the tribal people or the, the, the tribal farmers uh, uh, decided, uh, tribal council, that they, would, they, they wanted to hire an attorney and it happened to be Charles Lewis, but he's a very young attorney that lived in, in Walla Walla. Uh, <clears throat> but just I think he helped form that, uh, draft that constitution, um, the 1940-1950 tribal constitution that created the General Council and Board of Trustees. But I also understand um, that at an earlier time that there was a Nespers uh, uh, tribal member here. He was in Wilderness but lived on Umatilla all his life. But uh, Nespers at that time, I think, was adopting uh, a constitution and bylaws uh, where they could elect uh, their own uh, officers. And I think that was kind of the model uh, that they were looking at. But Charles Lewis uh, was hired, and he, I think he's the one that uh, uh, drafted 
the present constitution and the bylaws that we have today in 1949-1950. And it also should be mentioned, too, that there were women on that committee uh, that were considering that uh, uh, the return of sovereignty, the restoration of sovereignty and self-governance. You're listening to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River System. Today we're hearing Umatilla elder and leader Anton Minthorn, who has a long family history of leadership in the Umatilla tribal government. It would be the 100-year anniversary of the treaty in 1955. Is that right? Do you remember that ceremony? Do you remember the the celebrations of the treaty in 1955? Yeah, um, I was would be sophomore or whatever uh, in college, and my dad was was an engineer working for the Army Corps uh, Walla Walla District, and they were already down on the Columbia River at the Dalles. And uh, they were uh, getting ready uh, to build uh, the Dallas Dam. And um, I, got a, I, I, I got a summer job there uh, with a construction company uh, relocating railroad uh, there at the Dallas. Um, so I, 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 I was, that's where I was going, passing through at the time that they was having this uh, 1955 uh, centennial Walla Walla Tree, and, and uh, there was an encampment there uh, uh, right by where the golf course is. Now as you go through Walla Walla, there's that open Boleski, Boleski Stadium, Boleski Field. That's where they set up uh, their camp, and then they uh, tribes from Nespers and Yakima uh, and Umatilla uh, came and set up teepees and uh, uh, did reenactments of the Treaty of 1855, and uh, our first uh, one of our first uh, chairs was was a woman uh, uh, for Umatilla, uh, and she was given this talk, and it's it's included in one of our books. Um, the speech she gave a tremendous speech. It was it's really really great. Salilo Falls was an ancient fishing and village site that was flooded in 1957 by the Dalles Dam. Anton was old enough that he remembers fishing there and that it taught him about hard work, a lesson that stayed with him his entire life. There was a family from here that had a fishing site down in, in the, at the Salilo. And uh, my dad asked if I could fish there. And they says, yeah, you can come. So I used to uh, stay with my dad at the Dallas. He had an apartment there, a Dallas and trailer, trailer apartment. I don't know if I had my own rig or how I how I got a ride to Salilo, maybe my with my dad, uh, and I would stay there all day and fish at Salilo, fifty um, six. And uh, I was I was a good fisherman. I learned how to how to do hard, hard, hard work, hard work. Uh, uh, but I did fish that last year. Uh, and then I think there are some photos, actually photos. That the Oregonian reporter uh, was there and took some pictures. Uh, yeah, I was I was uh, there, and then and then uh, uh, I was in my senior year. And I went back to Gonzaga for the fall semester. Well, and then the, then the winter or the last semester, I decided I didn't want to go to school no more. 
I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Uh, uh, so I just uh, decided to uh, go into the military. And it just so happens when I asked the Marines, uh, can I enlist now? You can go right now. So well, I got I, I don't I got to go hawk my typewriter. I don't have any money, you know, to travel with. So I went back to school. I had my stuff packed. I went, uh, got my typewriter in the case. Went down to the hawk shop and hawked my typewriter. And went down to the railroad station. Jumped on the train. January. Jumped on the train. Headed for Seattle. Going over the mountains. Spent a day there and Sunday. Was sworn in on a Sunday, I think, uh, in a Marine office, recruiting office. Got the plane that evening, flew to San Diego, California. Got there Monday morning, was in boot camp that, that, that quick. Um, that was 56, uh, what is it, 1957 to 63, I think. Uh, Got out of the Marine Corps. Got I got married while I was in a corps, and then I went to live in San Francisco for a while and a relocation, and spent the sixties there, and then came back and to Umatilla tribe, and still no economy. Uh, so I began to work for uh, uh, companies, not white companies, Pendle and Green Growers. I began to work for them. Uh, in the meantime, and then uh, then they asked me, well, why don't you go back to school? Uh, uh, guys that were working at uh, Blue Mountain and, and uh, Eastern Oregon College, that they were they were had Indian programs there, and they were asking me to come back. And they says, how much money are you making? I tell them, well, I says, you can make just as much going to school. Uh, so I went, I went back, and then I uh, uh, worked in Port of Portland and PSU and Eastern Oregon and uh, University of Oregon, uh, and got my degree requirements all up. And I began to go to work with the Tribal Planning Department, uh, TDO, and became an, uh, an apprentice planner, resident planner, land, uh, zoning administrator, water code administrator. I was doing doing all that work uh, when I was asked if I would run for office. And my dad was was on tribal council. He'd spend time there, uh, and then also at, at work. And he was and he was asked that question uh, about about uh, a Native American Indian that's an engineer, civil engineer working on the dam, the Dells Dam, that's going to, that's going to have, cause problems with uh, salmon. Uh, and after the fact, the question was also asked about why he was there. And he said, it was my job. That was my job. I had to do that. And then he was councilman before, and he, and he opposed he he opposed uh, that that kind of uh, doing that to natural resources of of doing away with uh, water and salmon. But like I say, what are you going to do? You got a job, 
And then the the thing I always think about that what he said, well, that's my job. Then I think about I go to I go to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, or even before the nineteen, and and we we redevelop, rebuild Salilo Village, and it's the Umatillas that are the driving force. And it's the General Council Chairman, Board of Trustees Chairman, that's pushing that. He's son. That's uh, that's putting it back together again. And I was remembering to think about that, and this is, and the, the reason was that the people need to keep a presence on the river. Salalo is important. We got to keep that presence. We got to do that redevelopment, and again, it comes out a win-win. And we have a we we assigned our planning director uh, uh, here, Yumatella, to work on a Salala project, and he was a professional planner, uh, and he would do all the tough negotiating uh, that was going on there. And eventually, we got it. We got that win-win, uh, and that's a point that. We want to get this inundated, and we come back and we rebuild. Uh, the, there's Inlucites and there's uh, Salado Village, and there are other sites underway right now. Yeah, it, uh, I mean there there is a strong historical presence of tribes in that area. And like I am indicating how we started the Confluence Project and why 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 we did it Lewison, uh, using Lewison, the time of Lewis and Clark Bicentennial. And to let people, the American people, know where tribes are, know, know what they have done, know what they have accomplished. And knowing that when Indians benefit, everybody benefits. Everybody wins uh, that because of the uh, treaty rights and interests and the honoring of them, honoring your promises, uh, that that uh, uh, becomes significant. We have we are achieving that uh, through what what we've done here. I mean, you're sitting right on it. Uh, there, but if you wanna, if you wanna get a win-win, if you wanna do that, then you gotta step up. You gotta be there. You gotta be at the table to make that happen. Uh, if not, then then uh, uh, nothing's gonna happen. Um, and I think that at this point, that that uh, like Slala Village uh, is 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 of economic value, is of cultural value to to that area. And I think that uh, there's a lot more that can be done, uh, but you have to have the people uh, that know how to do that stuff to step up and come in and help. It's like building this economy here, that we have to hire people that can get the job done, that, that know what their goal is, know, know how to execute uh, and get the results. Uh, and that, I think that's where we're at, uh, tribes across the board. And we can, we can redesign uh, the the Salilo, Dallas, Dallasport, uh, all that area. We we can we can have a big impact in that. 
But you got to be together to make it happen. Otherwise, it's, it's not. There's nobody to push it. You got to have the people in there that can get it done. That was Anton Minthorn, founding board chair of Confluence and former chair of the board of trustees for the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation in Eastern Oregon. We also heard from Chuck Sams, who worked for the Umatilla Tribe for many years before he went on to lead the National Park Service in Washington, D.C. This interview comes from the Confluence Digital Library, which includes photo galleries, documentary shorts, and articles connecting people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system through indigenous voices. Find us at confluenceproject.org, where you can also learn about our five completed art sites along the Columbia River system in collaboration with Northwest Tribes and the celebrated artist Maya Lin. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to Confluence, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River.